Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Safety and Health webcast sponsored by Fulcrum. I want to let you know as you file in that you're in the right place. We're going to get things going in about a minute from now. Hello again, we welcome and thank all of you for joining us for today's Safety and Health webcast sponsored by Fulcrum. Letting you know as you file in, you're in the right place. Gonna get the presentation going in about 30 seconds. Thanks again. Well, hello everyone and welcome to today's safety and health webcast, digitizing inspections to drive team performance and improve communication, sponsored by Fulcrum. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine and will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start a presentation, but first let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. Today's webcast is archived, so you can access it after our live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Jake Freeball. Jake is a vice president at Fulcrum, and his 25-year career in software has covered multiple technology specializations with a focus on data management and analytics. Jake places particular emphasis on helping business people understand the practical requirements of modernization. Jake, we thank you for being with us today. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thanks very much, Kevin, and thank you everyone else for being here today. I very much appreciate your time, and I know that you could have done other things uh, besides this, so I hope to make this session pretty valuable for you. Uh, I do look forward to any questions that you've got. Please feel free to throw them at me, and I will deal with them as best I can when we're done with the presentation. Uh, to talk a little bit about what we're going to be seeing today with respect to digitizing inspections to drive team performance and improve communication, I always like to start off with a goal, and that goal for today is going to be talking about the characteristics of high-performing teams, that team focus is going to be central to what we do today. As we know those team uh, characteristics, we're going to think about some pragmatic ways to improve safety outcomes and drive better business impacts specifically, uh, including some of the things that you see here. And to get to that goal, I'd like to talk about a couple of different topics. One of them is going to be some distinctive characteristics of high-performing teams. Uh, some of them are going to be the supports needed for safety inspections at scale, especially as it uh, reflects on digitization and communication. And finally, continuous improvement using data and metrics and communication, of course, will also focus a great deal on the use of data and metrics as well. So that's the general structure of the conversation today. And uh, let's just get right to it. Uh, we'll start with the distinctive characteristics of high-performing teams. Now, this is a, an area that has had a ton of research done on it over the years. And in fact, if you went out and looked at, uh, at, at some of the lists of characteristics of high-performing teams, you'd in, you'd in fact find a lot, of the, a lot of different takes on exactly what those high-performing teams look like. I've chosen three that you can find easily on the web. There are books written about it. There are a number of studies that are done on it, but these are three that you'll be able to find on the web in a way that's, uh, you know, so you can kind of validate what I'm saying and also go through and look at those more carefully. I'm only going to talk about certain aspects of them that are related to the inspection teams that we're talking about and things that we can control and aid with digitization. 
the first one on the left here from McKinsey, high-performing teams, a timeless leadership topic. Unsurprisingly, the fact that it comes from McKinsey uh, means that it's going to be focusing on a lot of the classic business characteristics of teams. So, for example, the composition of the team in terms of the number of people that are in it, uh, the skills that each of those team members have, the attitudes those team members have as well. And then finally, the dynamics or the interaction between team members. So here, things like trust is very important. The way that people communicate can be very important. And interestingly, risk is important, which is interesting for us in particular, because they claim that high-performing teams need to be willing to take risks. And yet our job is to manage risk more effectively and in fact, reduce risk. So we've got to be thinking about how that uh, trade-off plays out in the teams that we are working with. The second one here from Harvard Business Review is interesting because it was written by a guy named Ron Friedman, and he's a psychologist, and therefore a lot of what he talks about are, is, is very psychological. Uh, how much do they pick up the phone versus doing face-to-face -face meetings versus doing email? How much are they, what are they doing in those meetings that they have? In this case, for example, he talks about the fact that they like to have strategic level meetings where once everybody's done with that uh, strategy session, everybody goes off and does their own thing all aligned with those uh, strategic uh, goals defined in those meetings. So, um, you know, very much not a, uh, a situation where you've got meetings where you're going over all of the individual details. Uh, they talk about non-work bonding and things like that too. So, so you know, obviously some, some very psychological um, characteristics related to the high performance teams. And then finally, Forbes, you know, as I was doing some of the research necessary for this presentation, I, I looked at 14 characteristics and I said, I'm sure it's going to go over quite a range of different things. And sure enough, it's a hodgepodge of a lot of different types of uh, characteristics. And if you look through that list, it's, it's very interesting, but it's a, a list that is unlikely to be um, <clears throat> that is unlikely to be uh, something that gives you a, a methodological way to go through the kinds of characteristics that, that you're looking for in your team. So I encourage you to go out and take a look at some of the literature around high-performing teams. It is very interesting and there's a lot of depth to it and you're bound to find some things that are important to you and your team specifically. Uh, I'm not a big fan of one size fits all uh, kinds of scenarios, but I think that we can learn some specific things from uh, these articles and, and some like them that relate specifically to us in the safety industry. Uh, and I wanna focus on some of the things that they talk about that we can control within our constraints. Now, what does that mean? I wanna focus on both halves of that, the we can control first. There are certain aspects of our teams that are predetermined. Like McKinsey talks about the, you know, the size of the team and the members in it and stuff like that. We may actually already have a team and we may not be able to control that very effectively. If you're in a situation where you can start out you know, building a team from scratch, that's great. But most of us already have a team that's composed of a certain number of members, their aptitudes are, are, are maybe not fixed, but they are already in a certain state. Their attitudes are what they are, the level of diversity they have both of, of various kinds of, of characteristics, protected characteristics, et cetera, that we always talk about, as well as uh, you know, intellectual characteristics or uh, attitudinal characteristics. That, that kind of diversity is, is somewhat fixed on your team right now. So a lot of what I wanna focus on today is figuring out ways that we can level up the teams that we have in order to ensure that they are the best that they can be. I'm not necessarily talking about building a team from scratch. Let's do the best with what we have. And then within our constraints, by that I mean that there are unique requirements that we have. And the biggest one that I wanna focus on is the one that we talked about before where we are required to maintain a low risk profile. So if High-performing teams often are uh, you know, risk takers in various ways. We wanna make sure that we are taking risks that have uh, uh, hedges around them or that are ensured to uh, make that, those, those risky changes more incrementally so we're not uh, causing lapses in our requirement to maintain that low risk profile while we're trying to, to do the things that we do to improve our processes. So it's, it's very important for us to make sure that we're focused on the constraints that we have within our teams as well. So with that in mind, then let's talk about some of the supports that we're going to need to perform safety inspections at scale, and then we'll apply them to the, the team characteristics that we are, uh, are engaging with. And to start off with, I'd like to focus on three major characteristics. And you'll know that this is set one. I'm gonna come back to this. We're gonna go through a lot of stuff, and then we're gonna come back to additional characteristics 
later on. There will be a set two. But to start off with, let's discuss the characteristics, uh, these three characteristics. The first one is personal excellence. You can't force someone to be excellent. They have the ability perhaps to be excellent, but you can't force them to simply be excellent. But what you can provide them is the knowledge that it takes to do an excellent job. Here's what an excellent job looks like. Here are the steps you take to, uh, to execute that job excellently. And here are the, uh, the, the kinds of uh, criteria you have to demonstrate the fact that you have performed an excellent job. I like to think about the personal excellence uh, characteristic is one where you're trying to get the team's endorphins running. You know, one of the, the things that we constantly do right now is engage in things like social media, where if you post something and you get five clicks or 10 clicks or 30 clicks or whatever is normal for you, uh, likes, I should say, that is something that gets your endorphins running. It makes you feel like, oh, look, I did a great job. We want that great job. We know what these things look like. Pardon me. If we know what these things look like, then we can get that kind of a rush that says, hey, you know what? We really did something well. That's really critically important to engage in. The second is alignment. I need to be able to know not only how to do an excellent job, but as a team member, I need to know how that job drives the team, division, and company missions forward. I need to know that I am part of a team that's working effectively toward a common goal. And if I, can, uh, if I can align that way, then not only do I feel good about having done the job, but I know that that job is going to be uh, uh, um, making a difference to my organization. It's going to be valuable. It's something that not only I am going to see value in, but the people around me are going to see value in. And that leads to the third element that I want to focus on, which is transparency. I want to know how the job that I'm doing stacks up against the rest of the industry or stacks up against other team members or stacks up against other teams. Transparency is critically important because it ensures that people are understanding what's happening around them. And they don't just feel like they're doing a good job. They can see that they're doing a good job. Uh, one way that this was done, for example, um, if you know uh, Andrew Carnegie, the uh, steel magnate, he would put up just a big sign with a, sing a single number on it at the end of his uh, at, at the end of his uh, steel uh, steel mills to say how many units of steel a given shift had produced. Well, when that happens. Uh, the, the shift that comes in afterwards, after the first one, say the first one posts that they did five units of steel, the shift that comes in afterwards says five units, we could probably do better than that, we could do better than five units, and sure enough, they do six units, and then the next shift would come in and they do seven units, and so on, until the, uh, the amount of steel being produced was as high as possible. We want the same thing here. We want everybody to be looking at the same data and being able to compare themselves to that so they are able to say, not only am I doing an excellent job, and not only is that job driving the company forward, but it's also doing better against industry benchmarks and the people around me so that I know I'm, I'm really the, uh, I'm doing the, the best job I possibly can do. That level of, of pride is something we'll talk about a little bit more in a couple of minutes, but, but having everybody looking at the same data, make sure that everybody knows how everybody's doing, and that can drive organizational change. Given all of that, then, I'd like us to pay particular attention to the fact that each one of those characteristics I was talking about depends on knowledge. It's a really critical thing to be able to say, uh, not only I know what to do, but I'm going to perform according to the knowledge that I have. Now, when I talk about knowledge to people who are engaged in safety, quality, other uh, you know, kinds of meticulous uh, uh, parts of the industry, um, what I see is that they are very focused on training. And I want to make sure that nothing I get say, that nothing that I say here is taken as being anti-training. I'm very much in favor of getting the right amount of training and ensuring that people are, are fully trained to do all the things that they should. But I also want to make sure that we're not overestimating, or pardon me, underestimating the challenges that we have either. Uh, the, the training that we do can be expensive. Um, the people who are most experienced are the ones who are frequently called on to do the training, which means they're not out in the field or on the site or whatever it is doing what they should be doing uh, as well. They're busy training other people. The knowledge retention that trainees have can be relatively low. And that's especially true in things like on the job training where they are doing some specific kinds of tasks over and over again, but they are not uh, being able to see 
all of the different kinds of circumstances that may come up. They see those things that are most common, but they see less common circumstances less commonly because it's on the job training, which means that they lack a certain amount of the nuance. The people who are training are very focused on making sure that they walk away with what's really important. And they're going to get some of those other elements that are perhaps less important or at least less common. They'll get that uh, later on or as part of the, the, the follow-on uh, uh, processes. There's a limit to what we can test them on too. We can't necessarily train them on every single possible detail. So there's a certain amount of knowledge retention that, that uh, is, is not achieved strictly by training. And then finally, you see that high turnover means waste, trainers leave, and there's a certain amount of, of, of uh, need for additional new people to onboard. So you've got this constant process of people consistently training over and over again. And how do we make it so that we can support them through the, uh, through, uh, through the efforts that they're making, that we're making, and um, not just having the training be the only thing that we're relying on to make that happen. Um, so without understanding how important safety training is, I think it's important to make sure that we are providing supports to, to make people consistent, uh, to make sure they're uh, per performing high quality inspections and making sure that those uh, inspections are productive, they're being done in a very efficient manner. How do we do all of that? Um, one of the things I'd like to talk about is checklists. And I'm gonna take a little bit of a walk through this. I know that we're talking about uh, you know, the, the characteristics of high-performing teams, and we're going to get to come back to that. Uh, but, but walking through what the importance of checklists is going to help us understand why digitization is important and also going to help us understand how to support these people with these characteristics in these teams. So let's talk about checklists for a couple of minutes. And I'm going to use a medical example. Uh, even though we're not necessarily in the medical field, we all have experience with as consumers of, 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 of the medical industry. And um, the particular case study was written up by a surgeon named Dr. Atul Gawande. He uh, is the author of the Checklist Manifesto. And in fact, there's an excellent blog post about this that you can just go find if you look up his name uh, in the New Yorker. I think it was the genesis of the book. He, he turned that into a book or maybe promoted his book with it. Excellent, worth going to look for. His quote here, I think, is really critical because it, it encapsulates a lot of what we want out of checklists. They seem lowly and simplistic. A good checklist, frankly, is simple and so simple that it seems simplistic. And we'll get to how important it is to seem simple very shortly. But they help fill in for the gaps in our brains. In other words, as individuals, they help remind us of the things that we need to do and between our brains. Because when we're working on a common checklist, we have some tacit communication that occurs between us. We know what we're dealing with. We know what the other person is thinking to some extent because we're all singing from the same hymnal, as people like to say. And designed well, the results can be extraordinary. And it's up to Dr. Gwande to, to, to explain to us how those results can be extraordinary. And I will encapsulate some of his findings here. Dr. Gwande followed the uh, career of a man named Dr. Pranavost who worked in a Detroit hospital, and he focused on the intensive care unit in that Detroit hospital because the ICU had a significant problem with infections from IVs. Now, there's no reason to have an infection from an IV in uh, modern medicine. It's a very straightforward thing to, to, uh, to insert. There are five steps involved. They are very simple. And if you are, if you are in an ICU, then then getting a, 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 an infection from an IV is a purely preventable error. So he said, why do we have so many of these purely preventable errors happening in, our, in this Detroit hospital? What he found was, of course, in an ICU, that you're in a fairly high stress situation. There are a lot of things going on, and a lot of things may seem more important than putting in the IV correctly. They, there may be just uh, there may be a certain amount of urgency, which means that people are more likely to slip or forget steps. And uh, the, he, he said that he decided to demonstrate that a checklist would help stop these. Uh, uh, um, mistakes from happening. And he did a couple of things. First of all, he created what he called a stupid little checklist. Those are his words, not mine. Five steps, that's all it is. And he uh, made sure that the hospital administration not only allowed nurses to remind doctors of what it was supposed to be, and not only told the doctors to do it, but gave the nurses the power to enforce the doctor using it, actually set up a, a system whereby people would make sure that, that, uh, that not using the checklist was reported appropriately. So there was some real teeth behind the use of the checklist. And with a stupid little checklist, they went from having a 
large number of uh, of, of IV infections to having almost no IV infections. The program was so successful that it was rolled out to all of the ICUs in the state of Michigan, all the public ones in the state of Michigan. And the average number of infections in ICUs dropped by 66%. Not only did it drop by 66%, but the ICUs in Michigan, which had been pretty low as far as their uh, record goes, their, their record of safety went, the, they all of a sudden got into the top 10%, 90% of the ICUs nationwide scored below their average. So we're not talking about the best in Michigan compared to the average. We're talking about the average uh, uh, record in Michigan was better than 90% of ICUs nationwide. And of course, there are two metrics that are really important to bring in to, to bear here because uh, they, they bring everything back to the business results that we're looking for, which is the $175 million that they saved in infection rated costs over the course of a year and a half and the 1,500 lives that were saved as a result over the same time period. This was based on doing one thing really well, focusing on a single problem that had a, a common understanding Everybody already knew what they had to do, but just weren't doing it appropriately. So they were uh, they were given the order to do it, and they were they followed it every time, and they were uh, and the management backed up the fact that this stupid little checklist had to be followed. The results were, as Dr. Gawande said, extraordinary. So how does this relate to us in our field when we're trying to do? Uh, safety inspections across an, an entire construction site, or maybe we're doing it out, maybe we've got, we're in environmental engineering or something like that, we're doing safety surveys, uh, of the environment, whatever it may be, there's a lot of things that are different about what we're trying to do compared to what they were trying to do with that one single checklist uh, across those hospitals. And the, that is, the, the issues that we face include things like the number of things that we have to know. There are knowledge bases that we have with the training that we do and the manuals we provide and the pieces of paper that are attached to clipboards. And we need to be able to take that knowledge and remember how much knowledge, uh, how much excellence depends on knowledge. We need to transfer that information into the minds of the person who is actually doing the job. So how do we implant that information into that person's head? Well, one way is to make sure that if they have a standard operating procedure, that safety checks are embedded in that standard operating procedure in, go figure, a checklist. We wanna make sure that safety inspections consist of appropriate checklists. And not only that they have the appropriate checklist, but that we have the checklist set up in a way that's going to ensure better results and ideally also faster and more efficient results from people who may not be uh, as knowledgeable as we would like to be truly excellent. That would include things like uh, making things conditional. Maybe you know that there are certain circumstances in which certain uh, kinds of safety hazards appear where it might not otherwise, for, just to make that more concrete. Let's say it's 32 degrees out right now, it's rained over the course of the past day, and you need to watch out for slips. You don't necessarily want that uh, requirement to show up on a checklist that they're currently using, because if they do, they're going to, um, the, the, the hazards that are related to those specific weather conditions are going to be just skipped most of the time. And once people get used to skipping something, they get very commonly in the habit of skipping them, even when they're not supposed to. They, they get in a habit and therefore they skip it even when they shouldn't. So you don't want it to be something that they can skip. You want it to be something where you ask them a question. If that question is answered, yes, it is 32 degrees. Yes, we have had rain over the past uh, 24 hours. Then those appear, those questions appear and they can't skip them and still complete the inspection that they're doing. Another example of, of something that we want to implant in this inspector's head or this person's head is visuals associated with the way things ought to look. If you're looking at the forks on a truck on a on a, a, a forklift, you want to make sure that the forks look correct. You want to make sure that there's no oil and they know where to look for oil on the uh, shaft of the forklift, that kind of thing. You need to be able to give them visuals about what's happening. Now that does come from things like manuals and it does come from things like images in their training uh, or from doing it face-to-face -face in training, but you want to have that with them at their fingertips while they're out there in the field or on site doing their jobs. 
That's a huge challenge. And to me, this is the reason that digitization is so important because only by digitizing can you get all of this information into the hands of the people at, in real time, at the time that they need it, wherever they might be, and with virtual mentorship. In other words, uh, I've got somebody who's performing inspections, uh, who is uh, seeing things in a certain way. They, they see things and they think that it's okay. They take a picture of the forks on the forklift or the, uh, the, the, thing, the wiring that they're looking at or whatever it may be. And they say, okay, it looks like we're done here. If somebody else is able to look at that information in real time, while that person is still out on site, that makes a tremendous difference. They can look at it and say, yeah, you know what? It looks like it's okay. I understand why you think it's okay. But it turns out it's really not. You've got issues here that we need to be dealt with. And that virtual mentorship, being able to bring information to bear, being able to bring the, the knowledge to bear of more senior people to people who are more junior helps us with things like managing turnover and helps make sure that we're providing the right kind of support to the people who are coming on board new or who have just finished their training but haven't had the kind of practical experience that we'd like them to have. And then finally, <clears throat> it allows us to apply transparency. Only by having the knowledge that we gain from all of these people completing these inspections all at once, all of that information rolling up into an overall view of what our safety posture looks like, only then are we really being transparent about that safety posture overall. Only then can we compare ourselves to other teams or compare ourselves to industry benchmarks. And frankly, none of what I just described is something that can be done with paper. If you do all this on paper, then you're talking about uh, not having the level of communication you, you need. You're talking about not being able to get the kind of virtual, virtual membership mentorship that's necessary. So, so we need all of this to be digitized in order to do it effectively. Finally, we talked about alignment before. How do we communicate what we're trying to accomplish? Uh, all of that is going to happen by seeing how everyone's doing. And that means bringing all of this information together into things like dashboards, charge graphs, metrics. And what I like to talk about is those, you know, n number of days since our last incident signs. Those are critically important. Those are the equivalent roughly of the Andrew Carnegie sign. Here's how much steel was made here, the number of units of steel that were made that he used so effectively. But those are in some ways a negative, right? Well, here's something that didn't happen. Something not happening is really critically important. But what about all the things that do happen, that have happened correctly in order to make it so that we are now not seeing the problems that we would have if we didn't do all those things first. The X days to last incident signs are great as far as they go, but they don't give us that endorphin rush that I was talking about before that shows, hey, you know what? <clears throat> We're doing a great job. This is what we should be doing. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that when we get to uh, leading indicators in a few minutes. One other thing that digitization allows us to do that is not done when we are simply focused on uh, you know, handling inspections and, and checking boxes and stuff like that, is turning actions that we take into data. Um, inspections are a pretty obvious example of this, I think, where when we are doing an inspection, we are actually collecting data about the state of the scaffold that we're inspecting or the ladders that we're inspecting or whatever it may be. So that is a, a, a data collection process inherently. But there are other things that we do that we don't think about being data collection, but that we can convert into data. Tailgate briefings, for example, what's the point of that? Well, it's bringing information about what is what, what the safety hazards are likely to be in our area or things that we're likely to be dealing with that we need to watch for on today's, <clears throat> today's job, pardon me. <clears throat> so those tailgate briefings are really important and they do contain data. Site visits are related to the specific geography that we're in. What site are we on? Are, is this site uh, qualitatively differently different from another site that has uh, other issues in it? Remediation, that's an action that we take in order to fix a problem. We don't think about that as data collection, but in fact, there are things about remediation that can be really important, such as how long has it taken to do the remediation? That means that that affects uh, how many man hours are spent um, uh, in um, waiting for something to happen when it should have been safe before we ever showed up on site, for example. It enables us to see what the costs are of not being effective with our safety processes before the job started. Uh, potentially. So there's a lot of information that can come out of remediation too. So take a look at the actions that we perform and turn inspections into situational data, uh, the uh, toolbox talks into training requirement data, the, um, uh, the, the site visits into location specific data, <clears throat> and then finally remediation into uh, ROI data. 
So this all involves us reimagining our inspection processes and some of the other processes that we would be engaged in. We want to think about providing some kind of digital app that has a consistent process in it and reliable follow through associated with that process. Now, one of the things that I note and I'm very careful about when I'm talking to people is they, they are used to hearing that digital apps or digital, you know, some kind of technology, digital transformation is a buzzword, is going to change the way everything works. It's gonna absolutely change everything that happened. And I wanna be aware of the fact that we do have challenges. If you come up to people and say, this is going to change the world, then they're going to be very skeptical of you and with some good reason. So let's talk about some of the challenges that we have as we're thinking about digitization that relate to the way we will be uh, implementing our processes and uh, see how we can overcome some of those challenges. <clears throat> the first one I wanna mention is hesitancy. And the reason for this is that most of our most experienced workers are the most reluctant to adopt new technology. And we see this all the time in our customer base, right? The, the safety managers will talk about the fact that Yes, they can get some of their younger workers, their novice workers to be working on a digital tech, uh, a digital platform, but it's a challenge to get those uh, more experienced workers uh, to start to do things in a different way. And I think that's actually in some ways totally reasonable. We you know, safety people tend to be conservative in that we know that doing the same thing right every uh, same way every time is going to get people home safely at night. And so it's, it's logical for us to not want a lot of change uh, if we don't need a lot of change, we want to make sure we're only changing for the right kinds of reasons. So it can be a strain to digitize a process when people are somewhat reluctant to change. That means that the processes that we roll out to them have to be dirt simple. They have to actually provide some advantage over paper and pen that is uh, really very obvious from the get-go. And we have to make it as simple as possible for them to do the job. It needs to really show an advance in productivity. Interestingly, with novice workers, it's the opposite situation. They tend to be happier to uh, adopt the digital technology, but they don't know the business side as much. So for them, they need some kind of digital process to be extremely simple and easy to follow. Well, isn't it interesting? Because the, the, uh, the simplicity that's supportive of the novice workers doing things like conditionally showing them questions and then not letting them skip them is really valuable also for those uh, more experienced workers because they need that simplicity too, but for the opposite reason. So these two kinds of people are, are, um, are, are just opposite sides of the same coin. The focus needs to be on extremely simple processes that are easy to follow, not because either one of them is stupid, but because both of them have the need to, uh, to, to learn the new process by which things are going to get done more effectively. And Everything for this novice worker, everything has to be in that checklist. Every single thing has to be in the, that checklist because if it's not there, they won't know about it. But if you show it all to them, then they are going to be overwhelmed by it. And then finally, references for this novice worker need to be, uh, those references need to be at their fingertips because uh, if it's not, then they're not gonna be dragging around a bunch of different manuals to see, um, uh, to, to, to see the specifics at that moment. The references need to be there at that time. One of the most important things that we can do for both of these kinds of workers is to focus on situational variability. Um, the more senior workers used to capturing things by writing something in the, in the margins, sending a text to somebody, that sort of thing. Well, how do we capture that information now? Uh, if we work with spreadsheets, then, which is often people's first step into digitization, right, is, is to build a spreadsheet that contains that information and have people fill out that spreadsheet. Well, what if that spreadsheet wasn't designed to capture it? It's just as bad. They're going to add a column to a spreadsheet. They're going to use a column that normally doesn't get used and stuff information in there that doesn't really fit. That actually leads to some significant problems in using that data later. If there's garbage data in the spreadsheets that you're collecting things in, then any analysis that you do later on is going to be garbled as well. Garbage in, garbage out is the old expression. So we need to be focused on handling situational variability, and therefore we need to make sure that the, when we digitize, we are able to capture the changes that are coming at us and turn those around potentially while people are standing there in the field waiting. And uh, we see this all the time. Somebody calls up and says, hey, I've got a situation that's going on. There's no room in this form for this, um, for this particular situation I'm dealing with. What do I do? And the person back at the office has to say, okay, well, here's, uh, I'm gonna make the change to the uh, app that you're using. They hit save on the app. The person on the field hits sync on their phone. And now that new uh, 
uh, uh, variable is, is able to be captured out there while they're standing in the field. That's a critically important capability is to be able to handle that situational variability. Because if you don't, then what's going to happen is reversion to paper. This is the most common form of failure for a digitization process. People understand paper. It may not be perfect, but they know what it is. They know how to work with it. And it's much easier for them to start to, to go back to the thing, process they've had before to go back to using paper than it was is to, to fight a digitization process. So there are a number of things that you need to think about here, um, being able to do things when there's no Wi-Fi or cell coverage, making sure that they've got devices uh, that can be used on all devices. Um, maybe uh, it's, it can't just be a laptop, it has to be on phones or tablets. Those phones or tablets need to be cell phone or company issued. The operating system or brand can be really important. And even people who are not safety people at all and who have never downloaded anything to their phone may need to be able to uh, maybe need to be able to contribute some kind of issue or hazard that they've seen and report on it in order to capture all the information that we need to capture. So what we want to avoid is this reversion to paper. That's the single most common form of failure. And everything that we do should be focused on ensuring that that doesn't happen. Okay. That was quite a long diversion from my original bit of conversation, which talked about going back to those characteristics of teams. So let's talk about set two of the characteristics that we were talking about before. Remember the first three were all about the knowledge that these individual people had. This set is gonna start with adaptability. What are the processes that enable us to change in tandem appropriately to better achieve our safety goals? The more experienced, the less experienced, how do they work together in some ways to make sure that the processes are complete, that the information we get out of those processes are accurate, and that they are aligned properly with the goals that we have? What are our adaptability processes? The second one, mentoring. I briefly alluded to this before. I need to be able to have some kind of process that captures the institutional knowledge that we have uh, and help new inspectors develop their skills. Interestingly, that institutional knowledge is of two types. You, you think that it's all about the experienced people, but uh, and that's true. You want to capture all the knowledge that those more experienced people have. But the less experienced people, the people who are just now onboarding, will see the stumbling blocks more clearly. And being able to understand what those stumbling blocks are and clear them for future people, future inspectors, will be equally important in making sure that you get a good result from the uh, safety processes that you're digitizing. And then last, the pride and recognition that people get from doing that job. What are the processes that we have that ensure that people are actually getting praise for the work that they're doing and to make sure that everyone else knows they deserve it. So your safety team should be aligned with the goals of the organization enough to ensure that people in other parts of the organization understand the value of their work and are willing to say, hey, great job. You know, the fact that you were so focused on safety ensured that we got the job done with fewer days of work loss, that we got the job done with uh, uh, fewer uh, safety issues. We had the, the, the job done in a way that's going to make our entire organization better. So that's a really important part of it. It, it. It's part of that benchmarking process, but it goes beyond benchmarking safety people with safety people. It's benchmarking how well we safety people are doing with respect to the goals of the company. Now, what you want to notice about this is these are also knowledge oriented, but it's the, the focus on the process of acquiring, adapting, and leveraging that knowledge over time. So whereas the first ones were about individual people's knowledge, this is the focus on the processes that the teams have to, to, to really organize that knowledge effectively for now and the future. In all of the cases that I've talked about, the data's got to flow. And I don't have good diagrams for this, so, so forgive me for, for talking through all of these. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time on all these, but, but forgive me for not having a, a clear picture of them to, to put them in your mind. But you can imagine how when you are performing inspectors, for example, the inspector needs information to flow to the supervisor or mentor to uh, provide information about what the safety posture is right now. And the mentor needs to be able to provide information back about the advice that they have to give, what this means for the safety posture that we're in and so on. And in fact, you might see the inspector providing valuable information to the supervisor about the conditions that they're in. And the supervisor would say, well, in that situation, you need to be able to look at the following things. And that information might need to be built into the checklist. And that's why the experienced staff 
need to be able to speak to the checklist maintainer, whoever's maintaining those checklists, to be able to show how we need to improve the checklist that we're building in order to address the specific situations that we're facing. We wanna make sure that the novice staff are also pushing information to the checklist maintainer because that those novice staff are going to be clearing roadblocks for the future by showing how we need to improve ease of use. What things could be conditional? What things am I skipping all the time? Where would it be helpful for me to have a visual so that I can see what a correct wiring diagram looks like or, or uh, something along those lines? Um, inspectors and team leaders need to be able to push information back and forth. And here, if we think about the inspector to supervisor stuff at the top being about the safety stuff, like what is our safety posture looking like? What kinds of things would, should we be looking for when we're doing a scaffolding inspection? This is the management stuff. What is the tasking that we've got? Okay, I'm pushing information to you about the tasks that you have for today. The inspector while doing a, a walkthrough sees an issue. How do they push that issue back to the team leader? How does the team leader then say, okay, well, this issue needs to be taken care of. How do I remediate it? All of that kind of management stuff is, is part of what I'm talking about here. So there's the safety stuff we've got to talk about and also the management stuff that communication needs to be uh, followed in both ways. Stakeholders to team leaders. This is really important because the stakeholders are the one who are really thinking about the business issues. This, they're the ones who are thinking to themselves, okay, safety is important here because we are communicating our value out to our customers by saying we have one of the best safety uh, uh, safety records out there. And we want to make sure that we can land contracts more effectively by doing that. So it's really important for us, the stakeholder says to the team leader, it's really important for us that you're managing these safety issues that have been coming up. And the team leaders, by understanding the value that they are providing to the stakeholders is then able to push to their teams, hey, you know what, this is all about landing more work. Or you know what, we've been able to do a good job of keeping our, uh, our costs in line because we've been reducing money lost to uh, uh, to, to days lost of work, and we need to be able to continue to do that. So, so keep up the good work or whatever it may be that we're doing. Uh, team leaders to stakeholders as well. Basically, the team leaders saying to the stakeholders, this is exactly what you're doing. These are metrics you can use. If you're going to use safety as a selling point, here are the metrics that you can use in order to sell the, the job that we do to the clients who are looking at it, for example. So there's a, there's a ton of information that needs to flow from one to the other. And this has frequently all been done just by word of mouth, by phone calls, by meetings. If you have digitized the information, then now you can do that not only by talking about it, but by providing some specific metrics that can be used in order to communicate the value of what people do and all of these other points that I've been talking about up and down the chain and across the different business units to you know sales or whatever it may be. That's a lot of words. I'm going to do some instantiation of that uh, by talking about how we do things like continuous improvement using data and metrics. And that'll hopefully show you the way that you can build out something that will help you communicate what you're trying to accomplish and what you're doing to other people, uh, whether inside or outside of your team. And for this purpose, I'm gonna call up uh, another, uh, another uh, uh, person, you know, I talked about Andrew Carnegie before, who was a magnate. Peter Drucker is more of a business consultant. And one of his most important statements was you get what you measure. So what we are trying to accomplish here is measuring the right things so that we can get the right things. Let's talk about what that actually means. Now, some of the things that we currently measure the most, and for good reason, are things that answer the question, what happened? Let's talk about some examples of that. I wanna focus first on business impact me uh, measures. Business impacts might include things like an EMR that is increasing. Your experience modification rate in construction is a multiplier of your uh, work workers' compensation insurance. So, you know, one is the industry standard. If you have a 1.5 EMR, that's really bad news because you're paying half again what you should be for workers' compensation insurance. So an increasing EMR is a problem. But by the time you've got it, it's too late to do anything about it. Decreasing profit, that's something that people are going to be looking at very closely on the executive side. And again, once your profits are down, you're stuck with lower profits. Maybe your sales are decreasing. Maybe you've got delays on your projects. These are all business impacts that are critically important to the people who are managing the projects, negotiating the projects, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to get their attention with these measures. They're not safety measures per se. But let's talk that about safety measures that we do. We'll call these outcomes. Outcomes might be an increase in the number of recordables that we've got. 
an increase in the number of hazards that we see. Maybe we don't even know the number of near misses that we've had because we're not tracking that effectively. And then maybe there's a certain amount of days lost due to safety problems. These are all safety outcomes that we're looking at. What's troublesome here, not, not troublesome, but one of the issues with, with only looking at these, uh, these metrics is that they are they focus on what happened in the past, and by the time we see them, it's too late to make changes. We've already hit these outcomes. We've already had these business impacts. Because, it's, uh, because these are things that have already happened, they are called lagging indicators. They lag the activities that we have done, right? We've done activities already, and these are indicators that we see after they've already been done. So clearly, one of the things that we want to do is take that uh, these measurements and drive them upstream so that we can answer questions like what will happen? How can I do things that will affect what will happen in the future? Well, if we think about that, what kinds of things would we do is the first question. There are going to be activities that we engage in. They could be inspections and training, installation of, uh, of uh, the, the, the uh, ANSI standard and, and ASSP standard that, that uh, talks about this, uh, talks about installing uh, baffling in a hearing protection situation so that the uh, average dBs of, a, of an environment is less. So are we going to install some specific kind of gear, verify that people are wearing PPE, that sort of thing. These are all activities that we're going to engage in. Okay, well, if we engage in those activities, that's not a measurement. What we need to do is measure what we did with those activities. What are the outputs here of these activities? So we can see the percentage of inspections that took place or the percentage of people who took the training over a certain time period. Installing that, uh, if we install baffles for hearing protection, what did that do to the average number of DV dBs? If we're verifying the PPE wearing, what percentage of people were properly verified? Notice that these are percentages or rates because we want to be able to compare them. If we've got a team of five people and we see that 80% of people uh, took training within a certain amount of time, we want to compare that to a group of 100 people that, whether it's other teams within our company or industry standard or whatever it may be, we want to compare it to 100 people. So we need to be doing this in terms of percentages or rates so that we can make that comparison validly. Well, if we have these activities and these activities and outputs, clearly the activities also need inputs. And that input could be time, funding, it could be the materials that we're using, it could be the PPE that's being verified. All of these different things are inputs that go into the activities that we are engaged in, which eventually get translated into outputs. Once we do that, we're now looking at something called leading indicators. And by the way, if you look at the standard, you'll see these called lagging metrics and leading metrics. Um, we're looking at leading indicators, and these leading indicators will help us identify things that we do that have an impact on the lagging indicators. And I say help identify because we may do something, we may perform some activity thinking that it will have an effect, but we need to verify that effect. So we're going to drive the results downstream. We're going to do something like increased training, or we're going to do certain kinds of inspections, or we're going to see if that increased inspection actually had a result that drove down the number of recordables that we had, drove down the number of hazards we saw, now lets us know that we have a certain number of near misses. By the way, zero near misses is something to strive for, but if you go from having no clue how many near misses you have to knowing that you had five near misses over the course of a project, that's still better than not knowing at all. And then driving the business impact that we want to talk about so we can see increases in sales, increases in uh, the, uh, the, the efficiency of the time of the project timelines, making sure the timeline is getting done in time and stuff like that. So you want to make these changes, but you also want to verify that the changes that you're making are actually having an impact. Now, there's a ton to talk about here. I've only scratched the surface of it. Uh, if you look up SMART metrics, that's an acronym that you can look for. Uh, SMART metrics will help you build the right kinds of metrics here. I just want to touch on a couple that might be useful. By the way, there's the reference uh, that's just been published by uh, ANSI and ASSP. Um, I want to just throw a couple of different kinds of metrics on the table for you to think about. Of course, focus on safety performance. How many people are passing the safety inspections? What is the remediation time and cost when you see something that has been problematic? Uh, hazard reports, how, many, how often are we actually uh, reporting a hazard that's out there in the field right now, et cetera. But I also want you to think about inspection performance because we do wanna make sure that the inspections we're doing are being done in a very efficient way. If we are seen as being a drag on processes that need to take place, then people will resist us more. But if you can come back and say, hey, you know what? We had the following uh, time spent on inspections during this project and 
during that time, we caught a certain number of things that needed to be remediated. And as a result, we had a safer process. We didn't have to do that remediation later on in the process, which is always more uh, expensive. And you're complaining about how much time you're spending, but you're seeing that it's really not that much time being spent on inspections. That's all valuable. Those are all valuable things to be able to say. So think about not just the safety performance, but the inspection performance. And then finally, I want to focus on the big picture that you're looking for here. Because for example, if you punish people for reporting hazards, then people will start ignoring hazards. Imagine, imagine you've got two teams and they're roughly equivalent in most ways. And you start, uh, you know, you've digitized the hazard reporting process. And when they report, you know, so you see one team start to report a, a fair number of hazards and the other one's reporting almost no hazards. Well, you might say, you know what, this team over here is doing a worse job because they have more hazards. But it could turn out that this team's doing a better job because when those hazards are reported, they get remediated and therefore they have a safer environment. Whereas the one that's not reporting those hazards actually has a worse safety record. So you want to bring together the information that you have to be really focusing on what's important. And the what's important here is safer uh, outcomes, not hazard reports on its own. So keep your eye focused on those things that are really important to you. Keep your eyes focused on the things that are going to most improve safety overall and not just looking at the minutiae because people sometimes drill down too hard on those uh, those individual uh, items. And, it, and, and when they do, they lose sight of what's really important. Don't punish people who are reporting hazards because that will make them simply ignore hazards. All right, bottom line is that inspection performance is going to yield data. That data is going to yield metrics, which is used in feedback to the workforce. It reinforces good behaviors, gives you that adrenaline rush, is used for communication, et cetera, supports the stakeholders who need it. And together, uh, you get better outcomes. The alignment that you have by, by focusing your metrics on high performance, by communicating that more effectively, by driving the requirements of a high performing team and ensuring that you're giving that team as much as they can to be as high performing as they can, that's going to drive better business impacts from your safety programs. So with that, uh, I'd like to conclude the uh, initial part of this presentation, we can move to Q&A. Uh, while we go through q and I'd just like to let you know that if you go to fulcrumapp.com, as you see here on your screen, you can go to the upper right-hand corner of the screen. There's a try it free uh, uh, button that you can press there and start a 30-day free trial of Fulcrum. Uh, we get a lot of what I say from our customers. So uh, a lot of what I'm, I'm repeating here is stuff that we've learned from our customers and the things that they've uh, learned from their digital journey. So here, uh, if you'd like to start that digital journey, this is one place that you could do it. And I highly recommend you go out here and give it a try. Uh, you also see my contact information there. If you've got anything that you need to talk about, you don't want to put it into a question today, feel free to uh, do so now. Uh, and that's it. Kevin, back to you. All right. Well, excellent. Great job, Jake. Thanks for your insights and expertise. Before we do start the Q&A, just want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it helps us improve our future webcasts. Uh, again, as a reminder, if you want to ask a question of Jake today, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. With that, we will get started. Um, this question, Jake asks, how do legislation that talk about written documents accept digital documents from a legal perspective? Um, it, there's, it's, um, it's very straightforward. It's no problem to have your documents digitized. And in fact, there are certain advantages to uh, having your documents in digital form that are not there in a, uh, in a paper-based environment. So some of the things that you could do, for example, is, um, is uh, instantiate that record that it's, let's say you're doing an inspection, right? I'm just, uh, we'll just use a, the simplest form. I'm doing a, I'm doing a scaffold inspection at the beginning of the day. That uh, scaffold inspection can be done with a, um, with a signature, a digital signature at the bottom of the inspection. If you wanna get that specific information, you are tracking who was logged in at that moment doing the inspection. So you can capture that information as well. So you know exactly who is responsible for it. You can have a process where a supervisor is required to uh, sign off on that inspection. So you can verify that it was done correctly. Uh, and um, 
you can also audit the complete set of uh, records that were uh, changes that were made to a record. So, for example, you know what the original inspection looked like. If somebody comes in afterwards and says, you know, let's say the uh, the um, supervisor says, hey, you need to go back and check this following situation, then any changes to the record can be seen as part of a digital breadcrumb trail at that point, so that anybody coming back to audit will uh, then be able to. Uh, to see exactly everything that happened from point to point to point. So actually having a digital trail is frequently better from a legal perspective because it serves the same function as paper, but has a lot more detail and flexibility. Um, one other thing I'll note actually is that um, I recently was doing some work on fraud detection and uh, the there were, for example, um, inspectors in the New York City um, area who were inspecting transit rail lines, they've got an elevated, they call, it's like the subway, but it's elevated, so they call it an L. Uh, they were inspecting the L, and uh, theoretically they were, and the reports that were being written up were being written up back at the office without ever, anyone ever going to actually inspect those sites. Um, so clear fraud, and it would have been easily detectable if the inspection process had included an automatic geotagging of the pictures that were being taken and where the inspector was when they inserted the record. So because that wasn't being done, they had a basically a Word document that they filled out that was full of junk. And if they had had a, a geotagged record, then that would have shown conclusively that the person was standing where they said they were when they took the pictures that uh, uh, were used in the inspection. Since that wasn't done, the fraud was able to be perpetrated pretty easily for, for years. So there's a lot of benefit to having it electronically from a legislative standpoint. Hope that helps. Next one um, kind of presents a scenario. Rather than punishing teams for reporting hazards, what do you think about actually rewarding them for finding hazards? And your experience, has that been productive or counterproductive? I think that's a brilliant question. It's exactly the kind of question you should be asking. And um, I, I, will, I will say that my specific experience is probably too limited to give a general answer to that question. Um, uh, but but I'd like to, to throw out some things that, uh, sorry, with respect to hazards specifically, but I think that there are, I think you have to be a little bit careful about that in this sense. People respond well to incentives. So if you make the incentive too high, uh, they will find ways to have hazards. Um, let me put this in, in terms that I find interesting from a different uh, industry that I was working in, uh, where they were, uh, they, there was a call center, and people were incentivized on how quickly they got off of the call. One of the metrics that we found that led to an unraveling of a of a of a system of a, of a reward system like that was that most of the uh, people in the call center were finishing up their were entering all of their data in the last 10 minutes of their shift. Because what they would do is they would scribble notes as they were on the call to be able to just take down what they needed to to complete the call and then get that person off the phone. And they wouldn't spend time putting in the data at the time when it was fresh in their minds. Uh, and as a result, they would close more calls out during that, that time frame, during the, you know, the eight-hour shift they were on or whatever, but they would have really lousy data during the last 10 minutes of the call of their shift, putting in the all of the call information. So because of the incentive, which seems reasonable, right? We want to incentivize people to, uh, to, to, to at a call center to get us off the phone quickly. That leads to better customer satisfaction, right? But the result was actually something that caused problems in another area, right? So I think it's reasonable to say I want to incentivize certain behaviors, including ensuring that I've got the right kind of uh, hazard reporting in place. I, I really think that is valuable to do, but I think you wanna be careful about it. And I think you wanna make sure that you're looking at possible, um, possible side effects that you hadn't considered, the, you know, the so-called law of unintended consequences in play. Uh, so be careful about it, watch what people's behaviors are, really look at the kinds of things that they're putting in. And if it looks like it's getting a little bit shady in some ways, then uh, either reduce the incentives or uh, ensure that um, they're only incentivized for exactly the right kind of thing that you want. Uh, 
it's a it's a it's exactly the right kind of question, but the answer is unfortunately a little bit more challenging than you might expect from the uh, uh, from from the discussion that I had at the beginning part of that that uh, uh, that, that uh, section of the presentation. Just as we wind down, any advice to someone who's just really starting out with this, with just you know getting insights into data they're collecting or starting out with with apps for safety to do this. I'll give one piece that I think is really important, and that is don't shoot too low. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, as you get started digitizing processes, frequently people don't want to, they, they are a little bit risk averse. They don't want to do something that's too risky. And the danger in that is that they will pick something that's not risky at all, but also doesn't matter very much. You're already collecting reasonably good data on the on paper. Um, if things get messed up a little bit on the digital side, then nobody's going to notice. But that also means that collecting the same information on in digital isn't. You're not going to see an improvement in the data quality, let's say, or the completeness of it. And because it's not that much of an impact if things go wrong, that also means there's not that much of an impact if things go right. So I would say instead do something. Not betting the betting your you know your mortgage on it, but but do something that's important enough to get attention. Something where there's a data problem already. You're not collecting the kind of data that you'd like and you would do better if you had better data. Um, something that'll have an impact on potentially more than one group, ideally something that is where you, you can only go up from here and you've got, you've got cleaner data or you've got more complete data and you're able to use that data more effectively because it's being captured appropriately. Look for something like that. Don't shoot too small. Um, don't bet the bank on it, but don't shoot too small and, and look for places where a, a real improvement in data is going to cause a real improvement in processes. Um, that impact has to be there in order for you to get the buy-in to doing things uh, later on, investing more time, investing more money, um, getting uh, executive buy-in, ensuring that everybody uses it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's one key thing that I think that I've learned from our customers that's, that's been really important to them. Well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time today. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to Jake. And as you see there on the screen, those are the ways to contact him if you haven't sent one already. Uh, once again, hope you take the time to fill out the forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Jake Freeball, everyone at Fulcrum, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.